Welcome to the MFS Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Almeida. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. In today's episode, I speak with Pilar Gomez-Bravo, Director of Fixed Income in Europe and Global Fixed Income PM for MFS. We discuss her pathway to MFS, lessons learned, and how that helped formulate her views on proper portfolio construction and global fixed income portfolios. Pilar, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be back here in Boston. Yeah, very good. Well, first time I've seen you physically, two, two and a half years, Indeed. I guess. Yeah, I think it was February 2020 when I was last here. Wow. Uh, coming into a board meeting and meeting the team, and, and it's been virtual, and now back. Now you're back. Yeah, back learning to ride the bike again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the program. Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So um, for the audience, share a little bit of your background, how you got interested in finance, investing, et cetera. Sure. So I actually didn't have a vocation. I like I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be, uh, you know, an asset manager um, or a portfolio manager. So I I've always tried to keep my options open. Mm-hmm. And so when I started, I studied actually, I did a degree in law and I did also a degree in economics uh, to hedge my bets. Um, <laughs> and when I finished that, again, without having too much clarity as to which path to go, I actually started management consulting. I started management consulting because I wanted to learn and I wanted to learn as broad of a basis of capabilities as I could. And I thought that was a great fertile ground for for really having a great chance to look everywhere. Again, sort of keeping your doors open without knowing exactly where to go. Um, But two years or two and a half years into it, I became disillusioned for two reasons. The first one is because I couldn't really see enough of an impact of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do a lot of work. Um, you You learn a lot of structure in management consulting and a lot of process. But at the end of the day, these management teams weren't doing what I was right. thinking that they should be doing. Right. <laughs> and so I had no way it to really... like my kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you can tell them. And then they say, are you doing reverse psychology on me? Um, <laughs> and so I, I sort of said, OK, well, you know, that's just not satisfying enough that it's sort of you have views and you're portraying those views to your clients. But really, you, you don't follow up. You don't see the impact of that. And the second reason was because, frankly, after two and a half years, I felt that there was too much of a risk of ending up with a group of people that you don't like for six months in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so for me, having the aspect of the people that I work with was very important. And life is too short to spend time working with people who you, you, know, you, you don't feel are necessarily kind of people that you'd want to be working with. Um, and so I decided to, like many people, do an MBA. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to MIT. Um, here in Boston. In Boston. Yeah. Great. So I lived here for a couple of years. And after that, um, I ended up at Lehman Brothers, basically. So I did move to finance through that, um, partially because obviously, you know, that was certainly a lot more dynamic <laughs> than management consulting. And I was appealing, thinking maybe if I'm the provider of capital, <laughs> they'll listen to me more than. And uh, you know what was so funny then? Um, you know, again, I actually, my identical twin sister worked at Lehman, so it was very confusing for about a year <laughs> and a half. Um, and then she kind of left. But when I went through the process of Lehman Brothers, again, thinking, okay, well, you know, it's a huge bank. Like, where do you right. go, right? I always thought I was going to go into equities. I thought, well, naturally, I've been doing management consulting. I have views as to yeah. how companies should be run. I'll be an equity analyst. Uh, and I did rotate in, in equities. Um, but the fixed income leadership said, no, Pilar, we want you to rotate in, in fixed income, I think, because I had very good maths grades. <laughs> and what year <laughs> and, is that? So this is back in 97, 98, okay. uh, so quite a long time ago. 
Um, and, uh, and so I ended up rotating fixed income and I fell in love with fixed income. You know, again, it's like you don't want to, but you do. Sure. And the reason for that, especially on the credit side, is because there were so many arbitrage, there's so many ways to make money. Mm -hmm. And I thought, it's just like, you know, if I do into equities, I do my DCF, you right. know, my cash flow analysis, right. and the share price is where it is. I'm like, well, you know, you have to wait, right? Yeah. But the world of fixed income is so rich in opportunities that I sort of said, okay, I'll do that. And then I thought, okay, well, where do you go within that, right? And I thought, let's keep my doors open, be flexible, learn as much as I can. So I went to research, uh, into credit research. I thought this for two reasons. One, because it allows me to talk to the largest number of people possible. So I can talk to trading and I can talk to sales. Uh, I can talk to the bankers and I could talk to the equity guys, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was just maximizing the opportunity that for me to learn and to, to work with people, right? But the second key reason for me was because it allowed me to talk to clients. Uh, you know, and it was kind of a natural that as a research person, you would be sharing views with clients and learning as to what they need and what they want and how they think about the markets and what they're looking for. Um, and so that sort of took me through quite a number of years. I became head of research. And 2006 came around. And, you know, if you remember then, it was almost like last year where spreads are very tight. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of value. And, There's complacency in yeah. the markets. And I felt, you know, I want to put my money where my mouth is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, it's, it's fine, but I want more. And so back then, I thought, what better place to be managing fixed income than have Lehman Brothers in front of asset management? And two years later, it was not such a great thing. Um, right. Right. And that was a huge learning experience for me because, you know, all of a sudden, your life falls apart in terms of your professional life, right? I had been at Lehman Brothers for many, many years. Something out of your control. Just completely out of my control. And then you start feeling, you know, you, you start doubting yourself, right? Yeah, right? You know, clearly I didn't see, how could I not? I mean, and the reason why you start doubting is at that time, you know, when I moved on to asset management, uh, I was a banks analyst. I'm like, how could I not see this coming, right? I mean, and sure, you have your doubts and you have your things, but you're loyal. Like, I'm a very loyal person, right? And I felt like I could make a difference. And, um, and so, you know, the good thing is I lost everything, but I didn't lose my job. So I kept mm -hmm. on being a portfolio manager had responsibilities for clients and clients' money, and had really, a, more than anything else, responsibility for my team. And we had built out the team. So, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I, you know, drew me to to kind of finance and drew me to, you know, these this business is being able to serve clients, but also grow, like, and, and tr you know, feel like you're adding value somehow, mm -hmm. right, yeah. through yeah. Yeah, providing, providing solution, and, and, and that requires a, a degree of entrepreneurial spirit, right? Even sure. though you're not in a startup, you feel like you need to get there, right? And so when, you know, when something like that happens, you have to go back to first principles, right? And I, I remember back in management consulting, that the first managing director that I talked to said to me, Pilar, never forget that you're here to serve. Like, this is what we do we're in service industry, yeah. we serve, right? And so obviously, you know, as, as hard as Lehman was, you know, I was like, well, I, I you know, I have clients, I have people that are yeah. accountable for, yeah. right? Real that, pe you know, real the people. people that are, and, you know, and that sort of kept me going for a while. Um, and, you know, having lost everything, tough, and there's lots of lessons learned from that as an investor. Um, not be actually the portfolios I was managing were doing fine, but it didn't matter really. Right. No, yeah, and the foundation like, you, right. Exactly. Um, I decided to say, well, I have like, my opportunity cost was very low, obviously, and yeah. so I went into the world of hedge funds. So I spent a couple of years exploring hedge funds. The reason for that was not so much the hedge fund industry itself, 
but was the solutions that they were providing to clients. I, this resonates with clients, right? So I was, attractive, I was attracted to the strategies that they were managing and thinking, can I do better than that, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I sort of talked to a lot of people. I worked on a couple of small hedge funds uh, because I wanted to have an impact. And I realized then, and you'll laugh, um, because at MIT I studied with Naveen Chitkara. So he was yeah. in my class. Yeah. And we remained friends for a long time. And he came over to my house at one of the round tables. He stopped by my house. And I was sort of saying, oh, it's really tough, Naveen, because it's hedge fund thing. And I joked around and I said, I think I'm too fiduciary for hedge funds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I just don't know. They're like cowboys. And, and there's like, I, there's such a wild range of people, right. some good, some really kind of horrible. Yeah. And he's like, you should talk to MFS. Uh, and hmm. I was like, Phew. M M MF who right? Yeah, I'm like yeah. I'm like MFS uh, because in Europe in fixed income, not a lot of people uh, at that time, which was 2012, knew MFS in fixed income, and so he said, no, no, really, really, you should talk to. Him. I'll introduce you. I know Bill and you know management is looking for to expand the platform. Bill Adams, our Bill Adams, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, is looking to expand the platform, and I think you'd be great. I think mm -hmm. you'd be a good fit, and. And the reason why I mentioned Naveen is because with hindsight afterwards, you know, we pride so much in our culture together to deliver value for clients mm -hmm. um, that, you know, as I was going through the process with MFS and interviewing with people, um, and he kept in touch saying, do you need anything? Can I help? You know, what are the values? I suddenly realized this, that why does a successful equity portfolio manager go out of his way to help fixed income? Like, where would that ever happen? Like, it doesn't, right? And he's going out of his way to help his fixed income colleagues. Like, mm -hmm. he doesn't need to do that. And I thought, well, maybe it is true that they <laughs> talk to each other. <laughs> maybe it is true that they collaborate. And it's those little signs, really, that win you over rather than what's on paper, right? right. It's sort of like seeing it live. And I've never looked back, basically. Yeah. But a lot of it was really kind of having flexibility, being able to adapt to new opportunities, moving from being an analyst and a manager to actually being a portfolio manager, um, and sort of thinking about what solutions you can provide to clients, whether they're your own traditional domain or are there other areas that you can poach ideas yeah. from that can add value to sort of the client um, experience. So I wanna come back to those formative years in, in just a moment, but I wanna take the advantage of something that you hit on and the importance of culture and collaboration and, and you know, give me your honest views. The way I, I think about investing, Oftentimes, and maybe we saw this with Enron as an illustration, it's the things you, you can't see that crush you, or it's the things that you can't count. In, a, in what's that Einstein quote? Not everything that can be counted counts on everything, right? Um, so being able to, um, I guess, check your thesis um, and talk to others, maybe talk a little bit about the, the importance of that as, as an investor. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what, you know, attracted me to investments at the end is sort of you, you need to create a, a holistic view of mm -hmm. an investment proposition, right? And for that, you need to check opinions from a lot of different areas, right? And I mean, I think that, um, you know, I can tell you from working elsewhere that, you know, a lot of people say they collaborate and they don't, right? And for me, that just means like digging deeper into a thesis that allows you to sort of check it from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. right. So, you know, the, the equity guy is going to have a very different perspective on the cash flow generation and the important material factors that affect the stock than the equity guy, than the guy who does hospitals and munis if you're looking at a healthcare company, or than the guy that's looking at regulation in the sector, right? So it, it really kind of helps frame two things. One is what your base outcome could be, but really what the tail risks are. Yeah. 
And so for fixed income, it's really difficult not to draw on the expertise elsewhere when you have all to lose and little to gain. Right. So it's even more important than the other way around. So I appreciate you know, that equities actually still rely a lot on the discussions with fixed income. But for fixed income, you need to really have that comprehensive view of your base outcome and your tail risk. So you know, you're talking you know, obviously with the equity guys about sort of an equity stock. And I've had conversations, for example, in a company with, um, with an equity PM and an, and an analyst. And they said, Pilar, we just came back and we talked to this company and they want to blow up the balance sheet. And like I had some bonds. I'm like, well, I'm not going to keep the bonds. Right, <laughs> and right. so I'm not going to be hanging around. And you can only do that if you have somebody that comes around and sort of says, hey, right. you know. Right. And, and so that's the value of the collaboration is the, is the, and that struck me so much here, is that people actually call you and yeah. tell you, hey, by the way, so it's not just you having to be proactive yeah. and saying, hey, can you, can you help me? Is people help you, right? The muni guys, you know, I'll talk to the muni guys and they'll say, hey, Pilar, I think this is going to be a great idea. This is our highest conviction views in our muni portfolios. I'm like, well, I can, I can use that, you know? Right. And right. I'm like, where does that happen? And so that collaboration just feeds helping each other out to make better investment decisions. And, and you need that to thrive, especially in fixed income, because of the tail risks and the capital loss that you could experience if you don't do that. Yeah. So let's go back to uh, those years, whether pre-Lehman or post-Lehman, you know, or let's go forward 10, 20 years into the future. And I don't know, you're teaching a class at MIT or you're mentoring a younger person. What are the... I don't know, one or two things that really stuck out to you that maybe you didn't know then that if you can go back to 06 Pilar and tell her or I don't know, uh, something that, that was just really formative for you. Yeah. So I was a teaching assistant at MIT. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so leaving that aside, if I go forward and I am, I mean, I think a lot of it as you grow with experience is just is taking a step back, right? And and really kind of drawing the big picture. And the reason why I mentioned that is because ultimately we build risk, right? Yep. And you do that through idea generation, right? So you need to get those ideas into portfolio, but there's many ways in getting ideas into portfolio, right? So I think a lot of it is sort of take a step back and assess, right? Don't don't trade for the sake of trading. Don't mm -hmm. do something for the sake that you feel like you need to do something. But really take a step back and assess the whole landscape. Mm -hmm. And what I find a lot of the times is that there are little fires everywhere. And it's those little fires everywhere that give you a, a heads up of, of risks that you might not be aware of. Yeah. Signals. Signals, right? And they're not the sort of economic signals that you would sort of say, a model or whatever it is. But with experience, it's like the, the mosaic theory. Like you start putting things together. Pattern recognition. Pattern recognition. And that's what can help you think about framing how much risk you want to have and what type of risk you want to have in whatever mandate you're managing for whatever client, right? Yeah. And that only comes through experience. And and the other thing I would sort of say, like I do, is don't be afraid to fail. Because you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to call everything right. So what's important when you fail is that when you fail, you have a net below you. As in, like, you know, make sure you protect the portfolios. And that gives you the freedom to get things wrong, right? Because whether you're an analyst or portfolio manager, you know, hey, if you're doing 60% of the time right, you're going to get it right. And not all levers that you're pulling in the portfolios are always going to all be working at the same time, right? So that diversification, that consciousness of, of conviction yeah. is really important. So what I would teach people is like, you need to have conviction, right? With conviction comes action. 
if you don't have conviction, you need to get enough information to have conviction because then you can't really take smart risk. And we get paid to take risk. So what we don't get paid is not to do anything and sit, you know, and be inactive. Mm-hmm. But we get paid to take smart risk. So how do you take smart risk is kind of what I would say. It's like you need to find your own way to then go, whether you're an analyst or portfolio manager, and say, no, I have conviction on, on this outcome, and I'm willing to have this amount of risk attached to that outcome. And how do you then protect it? Yeah. Is it through position sizing? Yep. Is it through diversification? Um, is it through hedging, right? And right. you're using a toolkit that allows you to do that. Yeah, it's knowing all the ranges of outcomes and then managing to that. Just exactly. Like you, like you described. So maybe um, jumping off of that. So we're recording this today on June 16th. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates as 75 basis points. Not a surprise if your frame of reference is last Friday. Uh, <laughs> it's a very big surprise if your frame of reference is a year ago when the narrative was transitory. Um, Swiss National Bank hiked interest rates 50 basis points this morning. So when you think about pattern recognition, how you've constructed risk, how you view the world today, what are things that keep you awake at night and maybe what are things that excite you and everything in between? So I always get excited as an active manager by dislocation Mm -hmm. because that's kind of where an active manager can come in and sort of identify value, right? Um, But what scares me is... Well, two things. One is that the current period is one that not many people have lived through before. Um, and that has its own challenges, not just so because you don't know what macroeconomically is going to happen, but also because the players and, and the actors in the markets, you don't know how they're going to react either, right? And so when I think about pattern recognition, what keeps me up at night is these little fires everywhere. It's sort of seeing crypto blow up. It's they're seeing- everywhere, right? <laughs> It's that these like suddenly kind of, you know, you realize that this is not gold, (laughs) basically, Uh, or seeing hedge funds that have to close down or seeing stocks that get severely punished for a slight miss in earnings. Right. And uh, and central banks that feel like they're losing the narrative. Right. And that makes me nervous. And it makes me nervous not so much because, hey, you were a long term investor and I know that the bonds that I own are going to deliver, you know, they're going to get paid, basically. It's sort of managing the risk around it and the uncertainty and and making sure that the clients understand your investment process enough to know that you're gonna they're gonna be okay, basically. Yeah. And so what I see today is a pattern of extreme uncertainty. So what do you do in periods of extreme uncertainty? You diversify, effectively. Yeah. You, you need yeah. to have diversification yeah. and uh, you need to sort of then decide um, with a very strict process what catalyst you want to see to dial up or dial down risk or buy mm-hmm. a certain name or buy a certain opportunity. And that's kind of what we're doing now. And in fact, I was talking to um, a client this morning, actually, who said, OK, the Fed just did what they did yesterday. What discussions did you have with the fixed income portfolio management team? What did you guys talk about? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's yes. And people know that something like that happens. And we're getting together and saying, okay, well, you know, what are the expectations? Are we going to have? And it's not just with them, but also with again equity yeah. teams. Like, how are you seeing earnings coming through the next? You know, or with you. Um, and so I think that that is kind of what we need to keep in mind. I'm really worried about liquidity, but because of, it's always easy as a, as a fixed income person that has credit exposure to be worried about liquidity. And I think people always underestimate the value of liquidity because, you know, they say, well, pension funds don't need liquidity. Well. <laughs> 
I, I'm sorry, but you know, yes, they I, do. I think they do. Um, and you know, you, you know, if the stock market drops 30%, I'm sure they like to buy the stock market. And if you don't have something to sell, you're not going to be able to buy the stock market 30% down. So liquidity worries me. But what worries me the most, and I look at these little fires everywhere, is complacency, and it's crowded trades. And so, you know, in a way, whether, you know, and I know rates a lot of the times with momentum or not, we talk about that. But for me, it's like, you know, where are the crowded trades and where's the leverage? So it's going back to the 101 of the financial crisis yeah. is who's who owns the risk yeah. and how crowded is it? And that's where we need to avoid yeah. being there as attractive as it may seem yeah. is just have that sort of wherewithal to sort of say, OK, well, I'm still worried about that. And so my worry is, you know, capitulation and sort of the dislocations that that you see as a result of the rhetoric from central banks and the fact that we've never seen this inflation before in 40 years. So along those lines of complacency, crowded trades, tell me if this is too simple of a view. Um, when you think back to going back to pattern, your comment on pattern recognition and, and past bubbles, you can almost just look at who were Wall Street's favorite clients and, and, and find uh, perhaps complacency and excess and overinvestment in bubbles and, and risk. So in the 90s, obviously, it was dot-com companies uh, through IPOs, et cetera. We know what happened with TMT stocks. Then it was home loan origination and American buying homes that they couldn't afford, et cetera, that manifested in, into banks. And both those were uh, complex, but I don't want to say singular, but it was in technology, media, and telecom in the 90s. It was in financial leverage in, in banks in the 2000s. Post-GFC, and speaking of complexity, it was financial leverage across non-financial uh, corporations. And that, I think, for the average investor is perhaps less tangible or, or hard to see. Maybe that drove some of the complacency. So as a portfolio manager in, in global ag strategies, you know, not that we can get into too specifics about what you're doing, but where do you see uh, the active risk at the aggregate level? You're going up in credit, you're going down in credit, are you less worried about duration because the bond market maybe has de-risked that? Or are you still worried? Maybe walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I have a privilege in managing global fixed income because I kind of can go anywhere. Yep. <laughs> so that's a privilege that not many have. And I appreciate the latitude that our clients give us in that choice. Um, and so there's two things. That's when you So there's the individual opportunities, right, within the asset classes. So the two things that you need to decide when you're managing global fixed income is, um, or, or the three things is, how much capital do you want to allocate to the different markets? And how much risk do you want to take within those markets, mm -hmm. right? So those are two different decisions that we talk to the team about. And separate to that is how do you think about duration? And do you think that we're going to live in a correlated world or uncorrelated world with regards to how rates behave relative to risky assets, right? So with those parameters, you kind of come up with a picture over the next six to 12 months and long term, right? Like the frameworks, the macro frameworks that we, we evolve. So where we are right now is that, yeah, we don't feel like you need to be as max underweight duration, certainly as we right. were at the start of the year, where tenure was at 1.5%. Yeah. Um, so we're now at 3.5%. And so the, the, so we are looking at which markets have already gone down the path of hikes, mm -hmm. um, where maybe you know we could sort of anticipate some stability, I guess. Yeah. Some um, of those risks have been discounted. Exactly. Yeah. They've already been discounted, uh, where we can start dipping our toes and sort of adding. Okay. And there are certain markets globally where we're looking for, uh, where we are overweight or we're taking more long positions in that. Um, and there are some curves that help more than outright duration positions. Yeah. 
And there are some markets where you want to take the FX risk and some that you don't want to, right? So we still think, obviously, in this context that it serves you well to have some dollar exposure, not so much because the valuation, whether it's fair value or not, it's just it's a good hedge, basically. Right. So if you're worried about uncertainty, yeah. you know, as long as you're not completely over your skis, again, it's not something bad to have at this point in time because either you know, the Fed's going to overdo it and your dollar's going to do better than everybody else or you're going to be in a severe risk off and the dollar's going to do better than everybody else. So you know, that's one context on, on rates. We are sort of, again, looking for areas where maybe to trim our underweight duration position, but still it's hard not to be underweight because frankly, the banks have just started hiking uh, the major developed markets, right? So normally rule number 101 on investing in, in duration is that you, you try to pick the penultimate hike <laughs> to start right. being overweight and we're nowhere near that. So we are playing more with relative value across countries and we're playing more with curves. The risky asset side is more complicated. I think it's I was harder say, to How do you find. balance that? And so I think there we're really not ready yet okay. to, to jump. And I think it's a big difference in mentality that through the global financial crisis, we were all, you know, taught to buy the dip. And you know, for quite some time now, we've been trying to sell the rally. We don't have enough rallies to sell. Um, so we're still in that context of upgrading the quality of the portfolio right. and the multi-sector portfolio. So what things are we doing? We've obviously been reducing high yield exposure. We still think that's quite expensive in general. Uh, we had Mike Scatchard in here a few weeks ago, and he was yeah. saying the same thing. And, and it's you know, highly correlated with equities. And frankly, yeah. I you know, have um, a view that I think that there could be still more downside in right. general um, if the Fed continues to be as aggressive as it is. Yeah. And so in that context, that area is when we'll be taking some risk out or finding more creative ways, and I won't go into the detail, right. of, of delivering convexity in that market without having to suffer the downsides yeah. as much. In convexity, uh, your upside is greater than your downside. Exactly. Yep. The upside is greater than the downside, and you, you know, we're doing that through some derivatives that we have that give us that, you know, that much more attractive risk return profile and liquidity within high yield, right? Um, and then on the other parts of, of the credit markets as a whole, again, you know, we've been reducing some exposure to hard currency emerging markets. It's still high beta, um, yeah. still has its own challenges, but we have been finding some value in local EM markets. And within the rest of the credit exposure, we've been, been trying to upgrade the quality. So buying more munis, buying a little bit more mortgages, yeah. where we were very underweight, right? And, you know, and then hold and sort of see kind of what else you know the market brings um it's difficult to again reduce significantly risk because of valuations and where they are but frankly you know we still and in fact again another client yesterday was asking me well you know are you adding risk or when are you adding risk it seems like every time that the yield goes up by 50 basis points or spreads or equities are down it's like oh, are you adding risk and no we're not um right. is the answer we're still holding back we're finding more idiosyncratic value to the extent that we can actually execute it, which is another big question. Right. Um, to your liquidity comments. Exactly. Earlier. But to the extent that we find that, then there's a lot more opportunities. And so we're relying a lot more on the analysts to sort of uncover these gems for us yeah. and being able then to manage the top-down risk to allow us to uncover these gems. You know, And so whether it's in munis or in corporates, um, you know, euro versus dollar exposures that we try to optimize for, given kind of our still aversion to add a lot of, you know, correlated equity risk effectively. Yeah. So I think the listener is going to view this as a loaded question, but it isn't. So given what you're, you're, you're framing, we've got central bank tightening clearly into economic slowdown. And we can argue and debate the magnitude of it, recession, soft landing, hard landing, um, what have you. But either way, 
uh, growth is slowing and central banks are tightening monetary policy, which is different than anything we've experienced in our in our lifetime, right? And when you think about the value proposition of someone like yourself, so really I'm talking about active versus passive. When there's an abundance of something, yield, return, ROI, et cetera, then the scarcity value or lack of value for um, security selection falls. And that's what we've had for the last 12, 13 years. And what you're describing is an environment of the opposite, where uh, return gets harder to source, harder to come by. Um, you mentioned earlier, buy the dip, and that was a, a central bank buy the dip dynamic, and all that's reversing. So is doesn't this set the stage, even though it's going to be a lower return world or should be a lower return, doesn't this set the stage up for quality active management? particularly in fixed income. Well, definitely. I mean, that's why my eyes glitter like gold. You know, I mean, it's like this. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you another example. So, you know, one of the things that we talk to clients about is like, when, when should you pay for active? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, what does active bring you? And I remember talking to a consultant who told me, you know, when I look at, when I want to award money to a certain asset class, right? The first thing I look at is who the managers are in that asset class. And I look at their performance in different volatility environments. Because if they're not generating alpha in any particular environment of volatility, then they're not really active, right? Yep. And so I thought, wow, that's quite an interesting thing, that if they don't see that differentiation of active managers in periods of volatility, then they may just go passive, which is like such a shame, right? Um, and so one of the things that we keep stressing to clients is the value of active is shown through you know, the, the dynamism of exposures, right? And the protecting portfolios for the downside in periods like this to give you the upside, right? So you wanna, as an active manager, the value is not, hey, you're gonna be more protected, which you are, yeah. because that research organization, the soldiers on the field are not just looking for upside opportunities, they're protecting you from capital loss, right? right. This is kind of where we are Permanent now. Permanent capital exactly. loss. Exactly. And so you wanna have that sort of you know, defense line. But on top of that, the beauty of it is that you are agile enough to take advantage of those opportunities so that 12 months ahead, your excess returns are much higher, right? And so we have, we show our clients uh, slides in our pitch books that show the performance of global fixed income strategies that I manage in different periods of VIX volatility. Yeah. And it's like eye-opening. It's like, okay, I see the value of active. I see that you're the drawdown risk because we show them sharp ratios and we show them what we're good at is sort of making sure that you're gonna consistent experience throughout a cycle, right? And we're gonna get you consistent outperformance. We're not gonna shoot the lights off, like, you know, but we're not gonna drop the ball either. But we're doing that consistently through time, but also being able to take advantage of these periods of dislocations that will protect your drawdown risk, but 12 months forward still, or three years later, or whatever period it is, obviously, longer term, you're gonna get the benefit of active. Right. And that's very powerful. And I find that now it resonates more because people realize that it's not a beta game anymore. Right. And you need that insight to be able to provide value from a bottoms up perspective and that security selection matters. Right. And that is strikingly resonates a lot with fixed income clients, especially multi-sector clients, because they're not used to having alpha from security selection. Right. They're used to having alpha from beta. Trading beta. Yeah. And that now is a powerful message to be able to go out to our clients with. Yeah. Well, and bring it back full circle, talking about your learning, your early year learning experiences of providing solutions 
and it just strikes me looking out over the next five to 10 years, that's going to be the demand, right? It, it's solutions in a return of not just avoidance of permanent capital loss, which is first and foremost, but then also providing above average uh, return against a, a yeah. Some other and costless I mean, Exactly. You just have to sort of, you know, you, t you, you understand your client, right? And it's like, well, what type of return do you th are you seeking, right? What's yeah. What do you type, need? What do you need? And how much risk are you allowing me to take to yeah. give you that, right? And they, too, have to go hand in hand because sometimes you just have unreasonable expectations of what the market will give you based on our active process, right? Yeah. And, you know, we're, there's things that we are not, right? We're, we're not short-term tactical traders, right? Yeah. And so that's not what we're going to give you. And so in that context, you have an honest discussion with your clients. It's like, okay, well, what is it that you're looking for? What solutions can we give you that will give you, like, you know, what I do, Rob, at the end of the day, and I, I say this all the time, is I deliver the collective wisdom of our platform in a nice, tight, risk-managed package. And so I need to understand where those boundaries are and what you want to, yeah. you know, use as a benchmark if you want to benchmark at all. But and that give that gives me ability for me to deliver the value of the organization to you, yeah. Yeah. within our sort of active long term framework, and that discussion is hugely satisfying. It's hugely enriching because that's kind of what we're here for. Yeah, right? purpose. Yeah, right. So I've held you here for a long time. Thank you. Um, but I cannot let you go without talking about ESG. So we had Mahesh in here recently, who you know and work with very well. Talk a little bit about high level, because um, we've got a mixed audience, diverse audience base. Everyone comes to uh, thinks about ESG a little bit differently, maybe level set for us. Talk about the importance of it, why it matters from your... Yeah. Your... I mean, huge topic. I mean, I go back again to basics. There is no single path to the truth, but there is one true path for us as active investors. And it's simple. We do our own homework. And I think it's like irrational to expect somebody who looks at management teams or credit quality of issuers doing their homework on a balance sheet, on a management team, on sort of a country macroeconomic, and not expect them to do the same on these other hugely critical sustainability factors, right? So why would we ever ever consider outsourcing that. Like we don't outsource any other parts of our homework. So we're an active manager, we do our own homework. And part of that homework is being able to assess the materiality of these factors for whatever type of investment we're doing, whether it's equities or fixed income, but obviously in fixed income you have additional aspects to consider, like duration and maturity profiles. You know, what is material? Are you getting paid for those risks? And can you find like again, you know, we, I think what, what str I struggle with is the, concept, the context of ESG is only a risk. Right. Sure, like it is a risk, right? But what about the opportunity, right? I mean, the companies that like, you know, we, we thrive in picking double Bs that are gonna be upgraded to triple B, right? That's what we need to do, right? As active investors, it's not just understanding the ESG risks, the sustainability risks um, of the investments that we make, but also the potential. And that's the value of active is finding the potential of a company or an issuer or a country that is making strong strides in changing the E, the S, or the G that is material to them as an investment proposition, right? And so we do our own homework and we will always, always fight for clients to allow us to do our own homework. Now, it doesn't mean that clients don't have different paths to the truth, but I think we have a very clearly identified path that is an active path that that is true to who we are as MFS. We don't outsource, we do our own homework. We do our own homework, we do it diligently, we talk across the board, 
and we factor and assess the impact of ESG like we do some of these other factors, and sometimes it'll weigh a lot more than a financial metric, and sometimes it won't. But we do our own homework, and that's who we are as active managers. So that is our path to the truth. ESG will always be there. It always has been there. It just doesn't have to be called ESG, right? right? And I think, you know, and I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you, and this has got me into trouble before. So you were talking about cycles and kind of how you see 2001 and, you know, how you can identify, you know, through pattern recognition what the next bubble is going to be, right? So at Lehman Brothers, I found a way to figure out with hindsight what the next bubble was going to be. And that was by determining whether, where the associate intake was going. So the associates were rotating around and, and there were periods like in 97 where everybody wanted to do EM and then Russia blows right. up, right? <laughs> and then 2000, all the associates wanted to do telco, equities telco, right? And boom. then you boom. And then 2004, 2005, structured credit was like the best thing ever. All the associates wanted to go there. And guess where all the associates want to go right. now? Right, right. So, so it's like an ARP. Exactly. There, right? And so, of course, you know, so yeah, they all want to do ESG and sustainability, which is very, you know, yeah. laudable and yeah. stuff like that. For the that. right reasons. For the right reasons. Yeah. Um, but again, you need to take a step back and sort of assess what are the bubble components of that and what are the true nature of what really you're trying to achieve with a sustainable investment, yeah. right? Well, it goes back to your comment earlier about complacency and crowded. Exactly. So you just need to understand the importance of sustainability, which is hugely critical, and mm -hmm. whether you're getting paid for that risk or you find something that is a potential opportunity set. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, it's very easy, for example, in climate to decarbonize portfolios. It's not so easy to decarbonize the world. Right. And I know of a company who succumbed to the ESG pressure and sold their business, which is polluting, to an Indian private owner. Yeah. That doesn't... Yeah. You're count. not decarbonizing the real economy at that point. You're just you know, But their the ESG scores went up. Sure. Yeah. And you know, shareholders, I'm sure, some of them were very happy. That's not yeah. what we aim to achieve. Right. So you it'll be no difficult. Impact. But I think you know, we're definitely convinced that we're doing the right thing for our clients and how we incorporate ESG always consistently into our process. Um, both the risk and the opportunities, rather than getting swayed by names and exclusion yeah. lists optics. and data providers and optics. It's, yeah. At MFS, we do our own homework, and we're always going to do our own homework, and it's going to incorporate sustainability always, because that's what we do as long-term active investors. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I try to emphasize with clients and with our own distribution unit, too, when as we try to market your portfolio and others, and we talk about duration of the Fed, and it's like, it's global research platform. It's people working together to do their own homework to come up with the right outcomes for clients. And uh, that, that's what's important. Pilar, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me.